Thank you, Rick. He can, uh, Rick can preach, Rick can teach, and Rick can sing. I don't have the ability to uh, sing. We'll see how I go with preaching after this, right? Well, morning again. It's good to see you. Glad that you're here today. Uh, If you are a visitor, I know we've said a special welcome to you as a visitor, but uh, again, I just want to make mention, if you're a visitor, you're here for the first time, or maybe you're a returning visitor, please make sure that when you leave, if you leave through the foyer, uh, on the uh, right-hand side there is an information centre. And if you pop into the information centre there, Tell them that you're a visitor, you will receive a gift bag. And um, if you take the time to fill in a a card with your details there, um, so that way I can contact you, um, you'll you'll even receive a gift. So make sure on the way out you pop into the Welcome Centre there and uh, tell them the pastor sent you and you want your gift. Hey, let's take a moment to pray. Father, we want to thank you for the Sabbath. We want to thank you that today we can come together and worship you. Thank you that we have already been worshipping you in so many ways this morning. And we take hold of your promise. Where two or more are gathered, you are there in the midst of them. So fulfill this promise, Father. Be present here today. Fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Clear our minds. Help us to understand the things that are shared, challenge and inspire us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. How well do you know the following people? Alan Johnston and Alan Morris. Anyone familiar with those names? What about George Patterson? Anyone familiar with the name George Patterson? Raise your hand if any of these are familiar. Ogilvy and Mather. Oh, Bill. Very good. Jeffrey Morgan Pike. Anyone familiar with that name? Okay. What about J. Walter Thompson? Ah, Bill. The most educated man in the room. Well, how did you go? I didn't see many hands go up, so I'm assuming you didn't do too well. Don't feel bad because, to be honest, most people haven't heard of these names either. These are the names, well, maybe Bill, do you want to tell us who some of these are? Ah, good work. These are the names, you've got it right in one, Bill. These are the names of advertising agents. And their job is to make a name for others. That's their job. They exist to sell someone's product. And if their sales pitch goes well and the product sells, well, they've done their job, haven't they? They exist to promote a product. And while you may not be familiar with these companies or these names, you may be familiar with their work. Let me share some of them with with you. Who remembers this commercial? Come on, Aussie. Come on, come on. Do you remember that? This work was written as a 60-second jingle by Alan Johnston, Alan Morris and other creative staff at the Sydney advertising agency Mojo in 1978 to promote, who's this promoting? Do you remember? It was the cricket, wasn't it? Uh, The second season of Kerry Packer's World Series Cricket for the Nine Television Network. You know, this song eulogised players such as Dennis Lilly, the Chapel Brothers, Ian and Greg, and Rod Marsh. And it ended with that, that famous refrain, Come on, Aussie, come on, come on. 
It's all coming back to you now, right, isn't it? Okay, here's another one. What about this one? Do you remember this fellow? There we go, the Go-Go-Mobile man, yes. Do you remember what they were promoting? Yellow Pages, very good. Created created in 1992 by George Patterson for the Yellow Pages, Go-Go-Mobile is regarded by many as one of the classic icons of Australian television advertising. You remember this gentleman, right? For those of you who grew up in Australia in the 90s, there are some here who may not have been born yet saying, what is this guy on? Yellow pages? What are the yellow pages? Yes, long before iPhones and the internet, that's how we communicated and found other people. Okay. What about this one? Ah, very good. Qantas, yes. I still call Australia home. This one was created in 1998 by Ogilvy and Mather. The Qantas commercial combined Peter Allen's song, I Still Call Australia Home. You remember that? Um, And it had choirs of children wearing white shirts in stunning locations around Australia. That was Ogilvy and Mather. Okay, what about this one? (laughs) Very good, Mortine, Louis the Fly, created in 1957. Louis was drawn and animated by Jeffrey Morgan Pike, and the jingle was created by Bryce Courtney. Mortine's slogan, you remember it? More smart, more safe. Mortine, ah, very good, very good. You know, I think sometimes I wonder, we need to put our Bible verses to jingles. Maybe we'll remember that more. The word, by the way, the word Mortine is a combination of the French word Mort, which is dead, means dead, and the German word Ein, one, dead one, Mortine. Recently, Mortine ran a campaign, this is just a bit trivia for you, which asked the Australian consumer whether Mortine should kill off Louis the Fly for good. There was, ready for it? There was a public outcry of support for Louis, gaining 200,000 Facebook fans. Can you believe that? Uh, One fan on Facebook uh, stated, the last standing Aussie icon is Louis the Fly. And as true Australians, do you really want to take away the last standing memory we have of this beautiful country? Louis was there through the good times and the bad times. Louis has been part of every Australian's life. If you kill Louis the Fly, then why don't you kill the Aussie meat pie, the thongs, the lamington, the Aussie barbie, millions of fond memories, and of course, me. This guy really likes Louis the Fly. Louis is all we got. Louis is Australian. Wow, there's some messed up people around, right? (laughs) Okay, what about this one? Yeah, snap, crackle and pop. I, I have to make an a admission here. I was more of a um, Cocoa Pops kind of guy. But uh, yes, Kellogg's Rice Bubbles snack, snap, crackle and pop. Um, you know, you may not have heard of J. Walter Thompson. But I'm sure you've heard the jingle, snap, crackle and pop, and that his advertising agency made for Kellogg's. And you know, there are, there are so many more uniquely Australian jingles, such as, let's see if you can, you can complete this, de, 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 decoray, yeah, very good, that's the, uh, the decoray shampoo. What about, you ought to be congratulated? Meta Lee, okay, we've got some avid TV viewers here. 
what about happy little Vegemites? That's pretty easy, craft Vegemite. What about this one? Life, be in it. Do you remember that? That was uh, Norm, wasn't it? Norm, that was the federal government, big push for health. Uh, what about up there? Kazali, there you good work. The uh, Australian uh, AFL, um, Hard Yakka. We're all familiar with that one. What about I Love Aeroplane? Yeah, good work. Uh, okay, here's one that's a little more recent. Down, down, prices are down. <laughs> Coles. And look, of course, we wouldn't finish without Aussie kids. Uh, wheat Bix kids. Sanitarium, Wheat Bix. Yeah. You know, we could learn a lot from these companies, can't we? What they do for their clients, we as a church exist to do for Christ. We are not here for ourselves. And church, you and I are heaven's advertising agency. We are to promote, lift up, reflect God in all we do. You have been hired by God to be His advertising agency. Are you up for it? In 2 Corinthians, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. Um, I will have these verses up on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, found in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. Uh, I'm going to read uh, chapter 3 and verse 18. I'm actually reading it from the J.B. Phillips um, uh, version. And Paul there in 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 writes that we are to live like, uh, reflecting like mirrors the brightness of the Lord. We are to live reflecting like mirrors the brightness of the Lord. In fact, earlier in verse 3, he says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, Clearly, you are a letter from Christ, showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. So our lives are a letter that anyone can read just by looking at us. That's what Paul is saying. And if we allow Christ himself to write this letter, not with ink, but with the living spirit transforming our lives, guess what? Our lives are going to be amazing. In 2 Corinthians, we're going to stay there, um, and you can go over to chapter 5, and this is the passage that I really want to spend time in this morning, is this passage in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Again, it's on the screen, uh, and it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. That's good news, isn't it? We've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him.
So the Bible describes us as mirrors, reflecting the brightness of the Lord. It says that we are letters written by Christ as his ambassadors. And it says that we are to reconcile people to him and to each other. And these are just, these are just some of the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the church. There's many, many more that the Bible uses. But the three main points that Paul is making in this passage in 2 Corinthians is this. These are his three main points. And I want to just share these with you this morning. The first point that Paul is making here in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, is that God is the driving force behind the redemption of humankind. Reconciliation comes solely at God's initiative. You see, it was God first who came in search of us. The second point, God acted through Christ's death and Christ alone is the means of reconciliation. It's because of what Jesus has done that we are reconciled to God. And number three, God continues to act through those who have been reconciled. That's Paul's way of, if I paraphrase it, Paul is saying, guess what? Now that you've been reconciled, you are now his advertising agency. And this is my big idea. So we're going to unpack these three this morning. And this is the big idea. If you forget everything that I've said, remember this. My big idea is this. God reaches out to us. Salvation is His initiative. God saves us, then sends us to represent Him in the world. That's what we're talking about this morning. That's what, that's what God is saying here. That's what Paul is writing about here in 2 Corinthians. So starting in, in verse 17, he says there, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, Paul here believes that the new thing that was foretold by um, uh, by God, you know, through Isaiah, in Isaiah 48, verses 18 and 19, has come to pass in Christ. And this new thing that Paul is describing here, all things have become new, this new creation that happens. He says, this is far greater than the exodus from Egypt. And it's far greater than a deliverance from Babylon. Because God has now delivered us from the bondage of sin. And He's led us back from exile of our estrangement from God to a new reconciled relationship with God. God has delivered us from the penalty and the power of sin. And He promises that one day He will deliver us from the very presence of sin. Paul says here that those people who are in Christ have experienced this reconciliation. They're a new creation. They've been changed. And having been reconciled to God, these people, you, me, we now have new values new behaviors. He describes it as being in Christ. This being in Christ in this context means that we are now compelled by love. This is verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us. Those who are in Christ are now compelled by love. They have died to sin. Again, verse 14. They no longer live for themselves, but for Christ. They are spirit-filled people. Being in Christ means that there is a radical change in their lives. They've experienced it. 
And all of this is God's doing. When Paul says, all things are of God, he's making it clear that this new creation, this new thing, is exclusively God's work. These people have been radically changed. I remember I grew up, and I've, um, some of you may know this, I grew up in a, in a Greek home, in a, a big, fat, crazy Greek home. I was raised Greek Orthodox. And our faith and our culture were intertwined. You see, if you're Greek, you're Greek Orthodox. They just go together. Um, at the age of 20, I started to read my Bible. And my life changed radically. Up until that time, even though we grew up in a, a Greek home and a, and, a, and a Greek Orthodox home, you know, faith was not a big part of our lives. It was just more of a cultural thing. Uh, church and faith and religion wasn't something that affected our lives or really impacted us in the decisions that we made. And so our house was a very secular home. At the age of 20, I was experimenting with drugs and alcohol and different kinds of stuff. And to be honest, my life was out of control. And God intervened through a miracle phone call. My friend one day picked up the phone and dialed his drug dealer. He wanted to get some drugs for us. And so he rang his drug dealer. But God had other plans. The phone instead went to the home of a Christian, a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And this gentleman, instead of just saying, hey, uh, you've got the wrong number and hang up, this gentleman saw it as an opportunity to share his faith. An hour and a half later, they were still talking on the phone. That next Sabbath, my friend was at church. I, I was introduced to this man who challenged me, and that led me to reading the Bible. My life changed dramatically. More in a moment. Paul says here, all these things are of God. It's God's work. He continues here in the passage by saying that we have done nothing to reconcile ourselves to God. God has instead acted to reconcile us to himself. Reconciliation, therefore, begins with God and it is effected through Christ whose death removed the barrier to reconciliation. That barrier was sin. In Isaiah 59, uh, unfortunately, I don't have this on the screen, apologies, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, writes, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. See, we created that barrier between God and us when we sinned. Interestingly, Paul is the only author in the New Testament to use the noun reconciliation and the verb to reconcile. He's the only one. And when the verb is used in the active voice, this is going back to the Greek. When in the Greek the verb is used in the active voice, it is Christ or God who is always the subject. And when it is used in the passive voice, humans are the subject. So in other words, God reconciles, man is reconciled. 
God reconciles. He's the one that reaches out. He's the one that does it first. And as a result, we are reconciled. You know, this word reconciliation, it assumes that there's a broken relationship, doesn't it? It assumes that there's been alienation or disaffection. The problem, however, is not with God. As if God, you know, was some cruel taskmaster that, that uh, we have rebelled from. Human sinfulness created the problem. And this sinful condition had to be dealt with before there could be any reconciliation. Sin incurs God's holy wrath. So it could not be treated lightly. It couldn't just be swept under the rug and forgotten about. God cannot ever be reconciled to sin. But this is where it gets beautiful, right? Because God does not turn away from sinners in disgust and leave them to their just deserts. He doesn't do that. Instead, while we were still in open revolt, God acted in love, Romans 5, 8, to bring the hostility to an end and to bring about peace. It is God who first reached out to us. And this peace that he brings is not simply a cessation of hostilities or some sort of uneasy truce. It refers to the mending of the broken relationship that results from God justifying us. That's Him making us right through faith and changing us. That's sanctification from enemies to friends. That's what happens. Jesus takes our sin upon Himself. He suffers. He suffers the wrath of God against sin. And he dies the second death. So that you and I, so that we might be reconciled to God and declared righteous. God gives himself to us in friendship. I remember my friend and I had gone out. We had taken some drugs. And my friend said to me, I want to introduce you to someone. And I was keen because I'm thinking, okay, we're going to go to someone's house and we're going to get more drugs. So I'm like, cool, let's do it. And so we go to this guy's house. We knock on his door. And he comes out, and instead of inviting us into his home, we stand on his veranda. It was winter, and it was cold. And we were standing on his veranda, and he just started sharing the love of God with us. Started to talk to us about this Jesus and God and this great work that Jesus had done. And I remember standing there on drugs thinking, this is not how I planned my evening to go. And I couldn't wait to get out of there. We finally left. And I was relieved. But my friend kept taking me back to his house. I was in his car, I had no choice. About a week later, we were out again and we were on drugs again. And I was, my, man, my mind was clouded with drugs and the same thing happened. We went to his house and we stood on his veranda and this guy shared the gospel with us. 
It happened three times. Each time I couldn't wait to get out of there. But something happened. Even in that condition with my mind clouded, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. Praise God that the Spirit of God is greater than drugs, greater than alcohol, greater than any barrier we might put up. We do these things and we run away from God and we fight against God and the Holy Spirit continues to hound us and hound us and chase after us. He never gives up on us. After that third time, I went home and I found my Gideon's Bible. It was the New Testament and it contained the Psalms as well. And I found it, it was at the bottom of my drawer, covered with a whole bunch of papers and things. And I opened it up and I started to read from the book of Matthew. I wanted to find out what it was that this guy was saying. Because of our extreme hostility toward God, this investment of God to save us is accomplished at unspeakable cost to himself. It meant Jesus had to be separated from his Father. In verse 19, back to our passage here, Paul writes, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You know, it's interesting here because Paul here is communicating what God intended to accomplish by Christ's death and resurrection. In the original Greek, Paul here uses the imperfect tense. Hang in there for a moment. I know I've been using a bit of Greek here, so hang on. Paul uses the imperfect tense here in the Greek to convey the idea of an incomplete action. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's incomplete, but it is only incomplete in the sense that God's act of reconciliation requires a human response. On God's part, he has done everything he could to reconcile us to himself. Now, the ball is in our court. Reconciliation requires that both sides acknowledge the wrong and for the injured party to let go of the pain. God confronted us with our transgression but has taken the initiative in Christ to resolve the problem our sin has created. God has let go of the pain of our deliberate rebellion and he doesn't count our sin against us. But it's up to us to accept that we have done wrong, to repent of it, and to accept God's offer of friendship. The ball is in our court. The ball's in your court. I went home and I started reading this little red Gideon's Bible. In the morning I'd wake up and I'd go to go to work, I'd catch the train and on the train, I'd sit there reading this Bible. I was, I was wanting to find out what it was that this guy had been sharing. In fact, you know, I thought you couldn't trust Christians. Because I had seen far too many tele-evangelists rip off their congregations, right? And so I thought, oh, you can't trust these Christian guys. And I thought, I'm going to find out exactly what it is that he's talking about. 
I'd come home on the train, I'd be reading my Bible. And instead of going out and getting high, I'd sit at home reading my Bible. What's going on? Who is this Jesus? And I was reading and reading and reading. And it wasn't long. I think I got through to Luke. Must have been about three weeks or so, four weeks maybe that I was reading it. Maybe about a month. I got to Luke and I realized that I was a sinner and I needed a savior. And it was there in my bedroom that I knelt for the first time what seemed like uh, ever in my life and I knelt there and I poured my heart out to God this prayer of confession and of my need of God. And I remember weeping, asking for forgiveness. And I remember standing there in my room, a new creation. I stood and I knew that I was a new creation in God. My friend who first introduced me, who first made that miracle phone call. You know, I've spoken to him many times since then. And I said, are you sure? He said, I didn't have that guy's phone number. God diverted the phone call. My friend was going through the same thing. At home, he was reading his Bible. I didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what I was doing. And the same thing happened in his life. And we contacted each other. And now, instead of going out at night secretly taking drugs, now we were secretly going out at night having Bible studies, watching Kenneth Cox videos. Oh, how our lives had changed. As we respond to and accept reconciliation with God, guess what? We are also to work toward reconciling, reconciling ourselves with others and pointing them to God. We now have the privilege and the responsibility uh, to share in this great divine enterprise and to call others to be reconciled to God. And we undermine this great calling whenever and wherever there are broken relationships. And it's interesting, you know, because Paul here, he's writing this and he's emphasizing reconciliation because this church, this Greek Corinthian church here, that he's writing to, they've got a lot of problems. These stubborn Greeks, the members there, they're fighting with each other. In 1 Corinthians, in his first letter to them, he tries to heal the split that has occurred as the members are arguing among themselves and they're saying, you know, I belong to Cephas and another says, I belong to Apollos and another one says, I belong to Paul and I belong to Christ. That's chapter 1, that's in his first letter. He's trying to bring about healing. Then he intervenes to... Uh, restrain the wealthier members there from trying to gain advantage over others by bringing legal action against the, the poorer members and taking them to court. That's chapter 6. Then he tries to flick, fix conflicts concerning marriage, reminding them that God has called them to peace. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Then he cautions the ones with knowledge to be considerate of the weak regarding anything associated with idols. That's chapter 8. And in chapter 11, he rebukes the entire congregation 
for celebrating the Lord's Supper that leaves poor members humiliated and hungry. In his second letter here, in 2 Corinthians, he actually goes on and he insists that they forgive the offender who had repented. Someone that he probably spoke about in the first one. And then add to all of this, the fact that the church is made up of Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians and they don't get along. That's why later in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, he asked for an offering to be taken up for the believers in Jerusalem so that he can unite them. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to unite them. And Paul writes this. Paul says that we too have been given this ministry of reconciliation. You know, the key phrase in the call to be reconciled is to God. We may attempt to reconcile with one another, but if we are not also reconciled to God, then there will be no reconciliation. It first begins vertically and it then expands horizontally. Reconciliation obliges us to reorder our lives around God. Our changed orientation, when we no longer live to ourselves, will spill over into all our relationships with others. Continuing to harbour enmity and unforgiveness toward others denies any claim to be reconciled to God. You can't be reconciled to God if you're not reconciled with your fellow church members or with others. Those who are reconciled to God are reconciling. Ellen White, in the book Desire of Ages, I don't have this quote up here, but I want to share this with you. Desire of Ages, page 440 and 441. She, she puts it this way. Desire of Ages, page 440. If one of these little ones shall be overcome and commit a wrong against you, then it is your work to seek his restoration. Did you get that? Now, you might be smarter than me because the first time I read that, I thought I misread it and I had to go back and read it again. In fact, I didn't like what she said there. If someone has committed a wrong against you, are you the guilty party? No, let's say you're an innocent party. None of us are innocent, by the way. But let's say you're the innocent party and someone has hurt you. That's what she's saying. If someone has committed a wrong against you, you are the one that's been hurt. You're the innocent party. Whose work is it to seek restoration? It's your work. It's my work. Then it is your work to seek his restoration. I had to read that a few times because I didn't like it. You see, we like to sit on our thrones high and mighty and when someone does something wrong, we want them to grovel, don't we? Oh, I love saying to my wife, I was right, baby. (laughs) Not very smart. My wife sometimes said to me, do you want to be right or do you want to be in relationship? Do not wait for him. That's the one who has offended you or hurt you. Do not wait for him 
to make the first effort for reconciliation. You get that? If you've been hurt by someone, a family member, a church member, someone in authority, someone in power, someone has hurt you, it is your work to be reconciled to them. Don't wait for them. You make the first step. She goes on. In the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, go to the erring one and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Do not put him to shame by exposing his fault to others, nor bring dishonor upon Christ by making public the sin or error of one who bears his name. Often the truth must be plainly spoken to the erring. He must be led to see his error that he may reform. But you are not to judge or condemn. Make no attempt at self-justification. How we like to say things to people and then justify our inappropriate behaviors. Make no attempt to self-justify, justification. Let all your effort, effort be for his recovery. She goes on. We are not to make it a matter of comment and criticism among ourselves, nor even after it is told to the church are we at liberty to repeat it to others. Um, While we seek to correct the errors of a brother, the Spirit of Christ will lead us to shield him as far as possible from the criticism criticism of even his own brethren. Did you see that? Someone may have hurt you. Someone may have done something against you. It is your job to come to them to seek reconciliation. And don't let other people know. Don't repeat it. Do everything you can to make things right with that person. That's the ministry of reconciliation here. You know, when I started reading my Bible, my friend, his name was Nick, started reading his Bible. Now we're having Bible studies and our lives have changed. It came to a point where we had to tell our parents, and we did. And at the same time, in our homes, there was great conflict. My parents said to me, if you choose to go to this church, if you choose to do this, then you need to get out of this house. If you live in this house under our roof, you do what we say you believe as we believe. And as a 20-year-old, I said to them, I love you, but I need to follow my conscience here. Eventually, after a while of pleading and talking and praying. We would go and see the Greek Orthodox priest with my parents. We would go to the Greek Orthodox church and I'd sit with the Greek Orthodox priest and I'd ask him questions about the things that I had discovered and he wouldn't, he couldn't answer my questions. And I said, well, why should I be Greek Orthodox? Why should I come to this church when you're not even doing what the Bible says? And eventually, I got kicked out of home. My parents said to me, you can no longer live here. And I was kicked out of home. But the next day, that was a Sabbath morning. The next day, on a Sunday, I went back to my parents to seek reconciliation. God had so thoroughly changed my heart. You know, before... I would punch holes in cupboards and in walls and in doors as I would shout and fight and argue with my parents. 
And through this entire time, God had so thoroughly changed my life that I just sat and took all of the abuse and the things that they were throwing at me and my cousins were throwing at me. I took it all quietly and I just prayed. I was kicked out of home. I went back. But they were adamant. If I believed this and I went to this church, I wasn't allowed to stay there. I lived away from home for almost three years before my parents finally let me back home. And you know, Greeks are so dramatic. You know, we we can like and laugh about it now. You know, we created drama, the classic drama, the Greek tragedy. You can go to Greece and see all of those theaters that, you know, that we used to build because of my desire to read the Bible my mum tried to kill herself three times she tried to take her own life blaming me saying it was my fault that it was shameful what I had done but I continued to visit and to pray And now we have been reconciled. My dad came to church for the first time about uh, three years ago. My mum hasn't come to church yet. A few years after I became an Adventist, my brother started attending church and he became a Seventh-day Adventist. And you know, Greeks are so dramatic. When that happened, my mom said to me, you've put the sword, the knife in my heart as far as it can go. Man, we're so dramatic, right? (laughs) Oh, you can laugh about it now. We have been reconciled to God. God sends us to point others to Him so that they can be reconciled to Him and so that we can be reconciled to each other. One final quote, I'll let you go. Jose Cortez, an Adventist, says this, Jesus has never been the problem. Christians, Adventists, people who proclaim to follow Jesus but live compassionless lives, are the worst advertising there is for Christianity and for Adventism. Having the truth, knowing how to defend our beliefs and being right is good. However, having the truth, knowing how to defend our beliefs and believing right without having compassion is wrong. It seems that we are good at arguing but at times really bad in living a compassionate life. Church, you are God's advertising agency. You have been hired by Him to reconcile others to Him and to reconcile others to each other. May God bless us.